I met somebody, oh, I don't know, about five years ago, and I haven't seen him for years. They shook my hand and they said, uh, Brother Melvin, I'll always remember you as the person who told the story of Bugs Bunny and the carrot machine at uh, some place where I had been and talked. And I thought, wow, so that's what I'm known for. <laughs> Bugs Bunny and the carrot machine. <clears throat> the story, memory's treasure in the secret of communication is what's before us here today. Uh, the funny thing is, is when I am called upon to tell stories, it's, it's more difficult than if they're just rather spontaneous. So there will be a few stories uh, interspersed throughout what I say here today, but um, I don't know why. I just feel a little bit more anxious about telling stories when there's an expectation that you're supposed to tell stories. <laughs> but I do want to begin with one. This is a story that I just recently became familiar with. It is a, it is a, a Jewish story, Jewish fable, and it's about two very, very beautiful women. Related, but unlike, their beauty not immediately striking, but one of the, two of those people who the closer you get to them, the more beautiful they are. One day, uh, they were in a discussion. They lived in a little village uh, on the outskirts of the village, uh, really, just in a, a rather quaint, uh, beautiful, um, homey home, the kind of place that you would want to live. Topic of their discussion was, who is the most attractive? <laughs> they, first of all, were trying to decide, how do you tell whether you're attractive or not? And then they decided that, that the way you can tell that is, how many friends do you have? So in the middle of the dispute, they said, you know what, let's just solve it right now. We'll find out who has the most friends. And so the first lady got up out, got up out of her seat, out of her chair, and uh, walked outside of the house and started down the main concourse of the town. Her name was Truth. And as Truth walked down the main concourse of the town, the, 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 uh, the inhabitants of the little village began to disappear. They went from their, from their lawns into the house, from the garden. They would look and they would see truth coming. They'd head into the house. Uh, some of them were brave enough to open the window and look out a little bit as truth walked the length of the village. When she got to the other end of the village, she was, of course, very disheartened. So she thought, I'm going to lose this contest in this argument. I need to do something rather dramatic, so she did. She disrobed entirely and walked back down the street the other direction. And as she was walking through the village, not only did everybody disappear, but they cowered behind their windows and nobody was even looking out from behind the curtain or anything like that. She got back to the house and she said, I don't understand it. Everybody fled. So, Story, the second lady, said, well, let me try. And so Story walked out of the village and down the street she went. And uh, 
people just flocked after her. They ran out of the houses. They mobbed her as she walked down and walked back. <clears throat> when she returned, the story looked at truth, and truth said, I don't understand. What is the problem? And story said to truth, oh, truth, don't you know? Nobody likes the truth, especially not the naked truth. <laughs> oh boy yeah let that one sink in there a little bit <laughs> story is rich actually and that little fable has an awful lot packed into it in fact my primary point is captured by that story truth dressed in story is memory storehouse and the the secret of communication. In fact, I failed to give you the last line of the story. As the two sisters discussed this further, Story suddenly took off her cloak and draped it over the shoulders of Truth. <laughs> and Truth, so now adorned, walked again through the village and was mobbed. I have eight points that I would like to make to you about story and how it makes a difference in what we do and how we as teachers function. I'm not going to say a whole lot about the actual practice of it in the classroom. Uh, just, uh, just try to inspire you to go home and find a great number of stories. I have here in my notes uh, a magazine from our library. It's called The Mennonite. And, um, this is October's edition, actually, and I was surprised to find the title page, The Power of Story, <laughs> is the title that is there. And so I immediately was, of course, uh, uh, very attentive to what was being said here. So I opened it up and began to leaf through it, and there's a, a number of things in here just very fascinating. I'll point them out to you quickly. John Roth, mind you, who was here, I believe last year or the year before, um, writes an article in here, and uh, his, the, the gist of his article, or the core of it, is the danger of a single story. Uh, he's talking about Mennonites in general, and, and he's arguing that the difficulty here is we tend to tell our favorite stories, and we don't, uh, we don't tell the entire story. And in his view, he says we need to tell all of the stories. And of course, we can't tell them all, but he sees danger in just telling a single story because it is typically a little, a little bit um, skewed one way or another. However, the most fascinating uh, article in, the, in this magazine is by Dirk Eitzen, who is, I don't know, some kind of a film critic, I believe. And uh, he writes a, an article, The Dark Knight in Aurora. And uh, if you catch on there, that's the reference to what was in the news, what was it last year, uh, uh, surrounding the film, The Dark Knight Rises. And uh, you remember the massacre that happened there. I found it fascinating what he said. I'd just like to read just a few lines. The way to change a culture of violence is not to avoid it, but to work actively to create an alternative culture of peace 
in our homes, our communities, in the world. That is what Jesus did in his time. Violent entertainments like The Dark Knight Rises are without question part of a mainstream culture of violence intend to sustain it. Nevertheless, engaging with such entertainments, even enjoying them, does not necessarily mean embracing or supporting the culture of violence. Violent entertainments can be healthy, harmful, pro-social, or antisocial. We need to keep in mind that we have control over how we respond to thoughts and images of violence. We are not passive victims or vessels of depictions of violence. We use them. They do not make us act in any particular way. We choose how we will act. Furthermore, movies and novels and video games are forms of make-believe. The reason we are free to enjoy violence in stories is precisely because we know that the violence is not real. This does not guarantee that it is good or even harmless, but it is in any case not actual violence. If we truly aspire to be peacemakers and if we teach our children to be peacemakers, no amount of violent entertainment is going to turn them or us into bullies or, or, or mongers, we can be rest assured of that, and I disagree. <laughs> My first point, story matters. It really does. Story matters. Um, there's an awful lot that can be told about a group of people by the stories that they tell. I'll let that point rest for now. I'll come back to it in just a moment. Number two, story connects emotion or the spirit with fact. This is not a quote from Stalin, but it's a reference to a, 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 an essay he wrote. It's a summary of it. Joseph Stalin from the old Soviet Union. He said something along this line. Now, mind, I'm not quoting, I'm summarizing. Two million dead is a mere statistic. It will be ignored and forgiven by history. Give numbers, but no names. And whatever you do, don't tell their stories. Now, you think about that. You'll read in a history text, 20 million dead. Uh, under Stalin, and I can tell you right now, none of us can grasp the enormity of that statistic. It, it goes right over the top of our head. <laughs> but if you take even one of those stories and tell it in great detail, which I'm not prepared to do here today, but if you did, it would, it would totally change the view. Story connects emotion, the spirit, with fact. The same issue is true of the abortion issue. I'm fascinated by the way this is done, if you read a medical journal, it's the fetus that was aborted. It's, the, it, it, it's dressed up in very technical, scientific, technological uh, words and vocabulary. And it doesn't mean anything close to the stories that are involved. <laughs> read a story about Sally and Sam and their baby and give it a name, and tell a story about it, and I can tell you it changes the entire tenor of the way the issue is viewed. One could argue that there would have been no civil war if there had been no Uncle Tom's cabin. <laughs> uh, honestly, the issue between states' rights and so forth and so on, none of us know exactly how that history would have panned out, 
But I remember myself as a 16-year-older reading Uncle Tom's Cabin. How many of you have read it? How'd you feel when you were done? <laughs> I'm non-resistant, but I was ready to take them on. <laughs> it was like, wait a minute. I, I don't mind telling you, I wept. My emotions were stirred. Story connects emotion with fact. The facts without the story are naked. They need dressed up in the clothes. Third, story is the primal vehicle of culture and values. It's the basic, it's the primary one. And I ask you two questions that I ask a lot of teachers, I ask a lot of places wherever I get a chance to talk to people. Number one, what stories do you tell often? Your favorite ones that you repeat over and over. Second question is, who are your heroes? Your heroes tend to be the people that you emulate in the story. Never forget sitting um, in the living room of one of my friends, uh, a pastor, a good man in a lot of ways, but I was surprised by the stories he was telling as as my sons, as some of my older boys, were sitting there at the time. Uh, he was telling stories about how when he was a youngster, uh, he and his friends would run away from the cops with their very high-powered cars, et cetera, et cetera. I wasn't impressed. Story is a primal vehicle of culture and value. If you think about it, the great stories, particularly the epics of, of uh, history, that was their primary intention. Um, those of you in, in world history class, the Mahabharata, the Ramayana, uh, they're, they're stories. Uh, we, we, some of our stories are taken from those, uh, but stories from India. And uh, it's, it's obvious as you read those stories, the intention is that as a young person had them read to him, he was to catch on to the values of Rama and Sita. And, and what it was, what it meant to be a, a woman of virtue and what it meant to be a man of virtue as well. The Iliad, the Odyssey. I know some people don't read these stories, but uh, if, you, if you read them for the, the power of, of, the, of the, the, the culture, the value that is being uh, communicated, Beowulf, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, War and Peace, Les Miserables, these are all books, these are all stories, some of them epics, uh, told in such a fashion that they, th their intention is to inspire something in the person who reads the story. Culture and value. In our own background, let's continue to tell our stories. Uh, Dirk Willem is a favorite story among the Anabaptists and one that ought to be told over and over again. Uh, down in our Library, there is, a, uh, I'm sorry, in our bookstore, Annie Funk and the Titanic. Um, of course, Sharon Yoder uh, wrote this, uh, retold this story in book form. And uh, my daughter uh, did some illustration on it. And for whatever it's worth, let's write some stories too. Don't just tell them. We need more of them. Let me give you one of my favorites. And a disclaimer just before I give you one of my favorites. Uh, I tell so many stories, so many places that I have, and I'm old enough by now that I, my wife says to me, 
uh, you told that story four times already <laughs> uh, to the family in the last whatever year or so, and I'm saying, did I? Oh, uh, well, okay. So for some of you, this is a repeat. Please bear with me. It's a story of Erin Rimple. It's one that should be told over and over again. It's set in the early 20th century, right after World War I ended, and uh, the Soviets had made their mark in the Soviet Union, and of course, it's set in the, in the, its setting also includes the Mennonites who years before, and those people who had decided to go east instead of west, <laughs> made their way across northern Europe, down the Vistula River, into Poland, and some of them on farther into Ukraine. The story is set in Nadenfeld, Malachna Colony, 1919-1920, you know your history, this is the whites versus the reds, as the armies that were backed by the, democ the Western democracies fought against the, the communist reds. The difficulty with that civil war was it swept back and forth across the Ukraine. Sometimes the reds had the upper hand, sometimes the whites had the upper hand, and of course, our own Mennonite people were caught in that back-and-forth flow of people. Aaron Rempel was a farmer and a fairly wealthy man living in Nadenfeld, and it was during the era of time in which the, the whites were on the offensive and the reds were on the defensive. Aaron was going to town one dark evening as the sun was setting and it was the twilight was moving in, uh, and he, he went and bought some groceries for his family at home. On the way home, as he kind of walked across the railroad tracks, there was a siding off to his left, and uh, a train, an engine with a number of railroad, uh, with, uh, I'm sorry, cattle cars attached to the engine. Aaron stopped, he heard voices. People were speaking, and one man was saying, help! Help, give us some food. And so Aaron, being raised a Mennonite, knew that it is the appropriate thing to help those who are in need. So he walked over to the cattle car, and all he could see in the gathering twilight were arms sticking out of the cattle car. So he reached into his bag of groceries and pulled out an apple. He pulled out a banana. I'm not quite sure what all he had in there, but he kept on pulling things out until his bag was entirely empty, and then he went home. A couple years went by, and the whites began to lose, and the reds were in the ascendancy. ascendancy. The communists began to win. And those of you who know the story, the stories of that era know that for those who were landholders, it was a tough time. And so Aaron Rempel was eventually arrested and exiled, he and his family exiled to Siberia because he was a landowner. Could have been worse, some were shot. In Siberia, true to Mennonite practice, we don't sit idly. Aaron Rempel decided that uh, there must be some kind of business here that one could uh, go about making money. <laughs> so you know, it's a cold place. This is a difficult place to be. What we need here is hot tea. And so he began a little business. He started to 
import tea. I don't ask me what his connections were, but he imported tea and he began a, a, a distribution center there where he distributed tea. And the next thing you know, uh, like Mennonites do, he began to be, have some money in his back pocket. But the authorities found out about this, and of course, in 1925, that would have been illegal to conduct a private business of this nature. And so, Erin Rimpel was arrested a second time in Siberia, fully expecting that this would be the end for him. I don't know the period of time, but the time came when he was to appear before the local commissar uh, to be judged and sentenced. He said goodbye to his family, thinking it was probably the last time. Appeared in front of the commissar. The judgment was, or the, the uh, proceedings began and moved along, and suddenly the commissar, standing, looked over his desk and said, Mr. Rempel, have we met before? And Aaron said, I don't think so. I said, I think we have. He said, do you remember a cattle car? Nadenfeld, I believe, was the place. And a dark, cold night, and some men sticking their hands out through and, and want, out through the, the sides of that cattle car and wanting some food? Yes, Mr. Rimple said, I do. And uh, the commissar, or the judge, said, well, Mr. Rimple, I was that man who was asking for that food. And now it is my turn to do you a favor. I have a question for you. What would you like from me? And Mr. Rempel, again, I remember was a notorious entrepreneur, and he said quickly, oh, Commissar, would you please give to me passage to the United States and for my entire family as well? And it was granted to him, the Rempel family, you can find their names in California these days. Um, and I, I'm not quite sure what all became of the family, but a very fascinating story from our own past. Don't forget those stories, and let's continue to tell them. They are the primal vehicle by which we pass values and our culture along to the next generation. Fourth, story builds community. In fact, just a little research I did on this, the, the secular uh, storytellers will tell you that at the, at the core of storytelling uh, is the idea of emotion that I've already mentioned and community. That's what it's about, very fascinating. Fascinating. Common stories bind us together. So I grew up in the Chambersburg area, and in the Chambersburg area, there are certain stories there that are told that all of the Mennonite families know. Many of the people around Chambersburg know those stories. They bind us together. We ought to tell them over and over again. Story broadens community. Uh, very interesting how this happens. The merging of stories that expand community. I love to think about it sometimes. I mentioned to, I don't think he's here today, but uh, 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 Jacob, uh, the, one of our students this, this year. Uh, what is Jacob's last name? Peters, Jacob Peters, married to the young lady from, uh, from Peru or from uh, Paraguay. And I, sometimes, I, one day I was just sitting, they didn't know I was watching them, I was just watching them. And I thought, wow. 
I wish that you could just back up through all of their stories. <laughs> Jacob's story going way back, this Russian Mennonite story that I just got done telling you, connected there in some way. And his, I think he told me his great-grandpa came all the way across the, the ocean after a, some persecution and this and that and the other thing. And his wife, who was a native Paraguayan. What, what story is there? And think of the merging of these great backgrounds in this one marriage uh, that has brought them together. So story brought, builds and it broadens. Fifth, story is memory's bank. Teachers use this tool. Again, I hate to bring up Ghost, Chris, and the rest of you students from uh, Faith Builders, but you remember good old Nebuchadnezzar, old Nebi? <laughs> I see some heads about shaking here. Well, story is memory's bank. So when I'm teaching world history, I kind of walk out that, uh, that story about Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar and, and that image, and we start talking about that head of gold and the Chaldeans and the, 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 the thorax of silver and the Persians and the, and the Greeks and the and the, and the uh, Romans, and we even have one leg longer than the other to, to aid the memory. But anyway, all of that, we tell a story to help myself and my students to remember <laughs> the actual order in which things come. But that's just rather trite, really, in a lot of ways. Story carries our memories. Just talking to, I believe it was Dave in here an hour or so ago, about uh, some of these things, and I mentioned to him the, the old medieval troubadours. Uh, you, I guess you realize that since 1450, you live in a very different world than, than the, the pre-1450 world. 1450 was Gutenberg's press and books. And by the way, for those of us who have white hair and we get all upset about the, the, the uh, computers and the phones and all that stuff, and I am a little irritated about it, I'll be honest with you on that, but the, the current revolution is hardly any more revolutionary than when the printing press hit the market, and books just fell into our hands cheaply uh, by the hundreds and the thousands and the millions. But what I wanted to tell you about this is prior to that, memory Cultural memory was kept alive by the storyteller, the professional storyteller, uh, the medieval tu uh, troubadour or minstrel or whatever you want to call them who traveled around all across Europe and would stop in at the village. And when he did stop at the village, everybody stopped what they were doing. The troubadour is in town. The storyteller is here. <laughs> and so people would gather in the, in the village square. And at the village square, the troubadour would begin to tell his story, or the minstrel. And as he did, I, this would go on three, five hours, and sometimes longer, and sometimes multiple days. Stories that these people had literally memorized. And much was passed down through these troubadours. I remember by story. That's how I think. I think in terms of story. And I would urge you to do something similar. Number six, doctrine without story is naked. Doctrine without story is naked. Uh, probably one of my favorite stories that I read sometimes 
and I know I've read this one for some of you, but uh, to illustrate this and to demonstrate how doctrine without story is naked, I'll read a couple of pages from uh, Ravi Zacharias's book, Deliver Us From Evil. Um, it's one thing for a preacher to stand up and pound the pulpit and say, the word of God is good forever and ever. It is settled. And it is the pathway to life. I don't want to preach a sermon here right now, but it's one thing to do that. It's another thing to use a story like this. Zacharias at the end of his book. And I bring this book to a close. Let us look back over the long journey we have come through in contrast to the secularizing influences that have disoriented our culture. He goes on and says a few things, and then he says, here's a story I need to tell you. The following story probably stirs my own confidence in God's sovereignty and the power of his word and my faith through troubled times more than any other thing I know, and my confidence in his word. During my ministry in Vietnam in 1971, one of my interpreters who traveled with me was Hien Phong, an energetic, devoted, young Christian who had worked very closely as a translator with the American military forces, purely as a civilian, with no official or military responsibilities. He just knew English so well that he was able to be of immense help to them in their linguistic struggles. By virtue of that same strength, he also worked with the missionaries. He and I traveled the length of the country and became very close friends before I bade him goodbye when I left Vietnam to return home. We were both very young and neither of us knew if our paths would cross again. Within four years, Vietnam fell, and Hien's fate was unknown. Seventeen years later, in 1988, I received a surprise telephone call that began with, Brother Robbie! Immediately, I, re I recognized Hien's voice. We got caught up with our pleasantries. Then I asked him how it, how it was that he had managed to get out of Vietnam and come to the United States. I was not prepared for the story I was about to hear. Shortly after Vietnam fell to the communists, Hien was arrested. Accused of aiding and abetting the Americans, he was in and out of prison for several years. During one long jail term, the sole purpose of his jailers was to indoctrinate him against the West, and especially against democratic ideals and his Christian faith. He was cut off from reading anything in English and restricted to communist propaganda in French or Vietnamese. This daily overdose of the writings of Marx and Engels began to take its toll on him, one of the books he was given to read pictured the communist man as a bird in the ironclad cage of capitalism, throwing itself against the bars of capitalist oppression and bloodying itself in the process. Yet still, it continued to struggle in its quest for freedom. He then began to buckle under the onslaught. Maybe, he thought, I have been lied to. Maybe God does not exist. Maybe my whole life has been governed by lies. Maybe the West has deceived me. The more he thought, the more he moved toward a decision. Finally, he made up his mind. He determined that when he awakened the next day, he would not pray anymore or ever even think of his Christian faith again. The next morning, he was assigned to clean the latrines of the prison. It was the most dreaded chore, shunned by everyone, and so with much distress, he began the awful task. As he cleaned out a tin can filled to overflowing with toilet paper, his eye caught what he thought was English, printed on one piece of paper. He hurriedly washed it off and slipped it into his hip pocket, <clears throat> planning to read it at night. 
Not having seen anything in English for such a long time, he anxiously waited for a moment, for a free moment. Under his mosquito net that night, after his roommates had fallen asleep, he pulled out a small flashlight and shining it on the damp piece of paper he read at the top corner, Romans chapter 8. Literally trembling with shock, he began to read, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What then shall we say to, in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who would not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He unwept. He knew his Bible. And he had not seen one for so long. Not only that, he knew that there was not a more relevant passage of conviction and strength for one on the verge of surrendering to the threat of evil. He cried out to God, asking for forgiveness, for this was to have been his first day in years that he had determined not to pray. Evidently, the Lord had other plans. The next day, he asked the camp commander if he could clean the latrine again. He continued with this chore on a regular basis because he had discovered that some official in the camp was using a Bible as toilet paper. Each day, each day, he picked up a portion of scripture, cleaned it off, and added it to his nightly devotional reading. In this way, he retrieved a significant portion of the Bible. The day came when, through an equally providential set of circumstances, he was released. He promptly began to make plans to escape from the country. After several unsuccessful attempts, he began again to build a boat in secret. About 53 other people planned to escape with him, and he was taking the lead. All was going according to plan until a short while before the date of their departure, when four Viet Cong, now if you recognize Viet Cong were the enemies, uh, they were the enemies of the United States. <coughs> Viet Cong knocked on Hien's door. When he opened it, they accosted him and said they had heard he was trying to escape. Is it true? They demanded. Hien immediately denied it and went on to distract him with some concocted story to explain his activities. Apparently convinced, they reluctantly left. Hien was relieved, but very disappointed with himself. Here I go again, Lord, trying to manipulate my own destiny, too unteachable in my spirit to really believe that you can lead me past any obstacle. He made a promise to God, fervently hoping that the Lord would not take him up on it. <laughs> he prayed that if the Viet Cong were to come back again, he would tell them the truth. Resting in the comfort of that impossibility, he was thoroughly shaken. When only a few hours before they were to set sail, the four men stood at his door once more. We have our sources, and we know you are trying to escape. Is it true? He unresignedly gave his answer. Yes, I am, with 53 others. And a sigh. Are you going to imprison me again? There was a pronounced pause, and then they leaned forward and whispered, No. 
We want to escape with you. In an utterly incredible escape plan, all 58 of them found themselves on the high seas, suddenly engulfed by a violent storm. Yen fell with his face in his hands, crying out to God, did you bring us here to die? As he concluded his story, he said, Brother Ravi, if it were not for the sailing ability of those four Viet Cong, we would not have made it. And the story goes on just a bit from there. My point, doctrine without story is naked. It's the story that gives credence to what we call truth. Remember my beginning story. <laughs> um, now, let me make sure that this gets personal enough. I read a story that happened to a person, a fantastic story, and I, and it, I have confidence that Brother uh, uh, Ravi Zacharias would not tell us the story. It's not true. But what about us personally? What are our stories like? And I could share one or two uh, 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 this afternoon. I don't think I'll take the time to do that, but you know what? We need to tell them. The stories that happen to us that increase our faith. I think it makes the difference between an alive gospel and a dead gospel. Doctrine without story is naked. My seventh point, the truth is in the details. <clears throat> Again, world history students, bear with me. A story I tell to all world history students is the story of the Battle of Waterloo. We're Mennonites. We're Anabaptists. We, d we don't believe in the military. I shouldn't say we don't believe in it. I mean, it's a, it's a reality. Uh, we don't put confidence there. And we can get vehement about that, but I wonder what we really do uh, believe about it, particularly when I hear us talking, telling the stories that we tell, and exalting military heroes, etc. I go out of my way to make sure that my students hear the details of the story. Let me tell you about the Battle of Waterloo. It occurred June 18th, 1815. If you know your history, this is the Napoleonic era. Uh, Nap Napoleon came to power in around 1799-1800 and dominated uh, France and Europe for about 15 years, uh, plus or minus a few years, and was fought on a number of occasions by various military men and armies in Europe. And um, Napoleon is given great credit for being an outstanding general his opponent at Waterloo was the Duke of Wellington from England. And the Duke of Wellington was also given great credit for being a great soldier and a great strategician, strategian, I mean. Uh, and um, hmm, here they meet at Waterloo. If you can picture the scene, Waterloo is a little town. To the south of Waterloo, is Napoleon with his army. To the north and west of Waterloo is Duke Wellington with his army. And to the east, over a number of miles away, is General Bleuker, who is German, 
and Russian, and he's commanding an army a number of miles away. Napoleon's strategy is very simple. If you follow, follow his military strategy at all, it's strike fast and quick before the enemy has a chance to get their act together. This was his strategy. He was planning to attack at 7 o'clock on the morning of June 18th. But something happened. All night long, it rained, and it rained, and it rained, and it rained, and it rained. <laughs> Not only did it rain, but just for good measure in the morning, when they awoke, the fog was so thick that you could barely see more than two yards in front of your face. Napoleon said, we have no alternative other than to delay the attack. So the attack was delayed until 11 o'clock in the morning. At 11 o'clock, the fighting commenced. And the struggle between the Duke of Wellington and Napoleon and their armed forces was fierce. Back and forth, they went with nobody getting the decisive hand until late four o'clock in the afternoon, the Duke of Wellington received a message from General Bleicher, I am here. In the intervening four hours, he had forced marched his army from the east all the way up against the, the flank of the, of the French army under Napoleon, and in a matter of an hour, the French army was decimated and left the scene. And we say today, that Napoleon met his Waterloo. Now, my question is, who won that fight? Was it the smarts of Duke Wellington? Was it his strategy? Was it his skill? Was it Napoleon's? The truth is in the details and in the nuances. Who brought the rain? Who delayed the fight? <laughs> who gave the space? For, Duke, for General Bleuker to pull up his troops in the, in the four-hour afternoon, the space to, to get in place and to deal, as it were, the decisive blow to Napoleon. I think it's clear. God is sovereign. You know it's not only the stories we tell, it's how we tell them. And it's not only how we tell them, it's what we emphasize in them. I could tell that same story if I was teaching a whole group of, of military cadets here and uh, trying to and inspire them to great leadership. And I would not bother too much with that detail, that little piece, that all night rain, <laughs> that thick fog. The truth is in the nu nuances. And finally, stories encourage. And this one is just for you, in case you're discouraged. On those days when you think you're not getting anywhere, it's one that you're familiar with, probably have heard it before, but it never fails to inspire me, and I read it periodically when I need to. As the old man walked the beach at dawn, he noticed a young man ahead of him, picking up starfish, flinging them into the sea. Finally catching up with the youth, he asked him why he was doing this. The answer was that the stranded starfish would die if left until the morning sun waxed hot. But the beach goes on for miles and miles, and there are millions of starfish 
countered the old man, how can, you, how can your efforts make any difference? The young man looked at the starfish in his hand and then threw it to the safety of the water. And he said, makes a difference to this one. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your love. And though I did not mention it as I talked, we hold in our hands often the story that you told. Great stories. Daniel, Elijah, Isaiah, Micah, Moses. And our hearts are inspired. But the greatest story of all, the story of Jesus. Lord, forgive us. We sing that song. I love to tell the story. But Father, I pray that truly we would understand that all of the stories that were told here in a few moments, in some 45 minutes, have no significance and no meaning outside of the great story. So we want to exalt Christ in his life, in his story. And Father, I pray that all of the stories that are encapsulated inside of this, these four walls as we sit here, Every one of us, there's a background, there's a context, there are stories that we could tell. Father, I pray that if time should go on and you would give grace, that the stories that are written by our lives would inspire. They would not be naked, but they would be clothed with the greatest story of all, that of Christ. And so we commend these things to you, and I pray that you would awaken in our hearts truth, clothed in story, and we pray it in Christ. Amen. Thank you. For more free resources that support teaching and learning, visit the docforlearning.org.